Hi everybody, JP here. Just wanted to tell everybody how excited I am that the AANS has relocated this year's meeting to my beloved home state of Florida in sunny Orlando. It'll take place August 21st to 25th. Once again, we hope to see everybody at the AANS meeting this year, August 21st to 25th in Orlando, Florida. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. We are delighted, JP and I are, to give you another episode on our discussions about how neurosurgeons are dealing with uh, the, the, the brain-mind interface, if you will, and the topic has been on cognition. So we are really um, pleased to have today a, a special guest, uh, Ian Kajigas. Ian is uh, actually a chief resident here in Miami, but he uh, has had a long and storied career already. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Now, I don't want to re- recite your uh, your biography or bibli- bibliography, but I'd rather you sort of introduce yourself as to how you came to have such a strong interest in functional neurosurgery. Well, that's a long uh, story, but uh, I think the short answer is one of lo- being a nerd and loving computers uh, and eventually uh, figure- trying to figure out how I could take some of that interest in technology and applying it to uh, improving the health of of people. In particular, when I was in high school, I had a good friend of mine who was uh, paralyzed uh, from a diving accident. And so, you know, I, during my engineering training, uh, while I was thinking about what I could do with the techniques that we were learning in school, I was sort of brought to the point where I thought maybe while applying the engineering techniques uh, from electrical engineering and computer science to the problem of translating signals that the brain is sending to the body could somehow be used to restore function after somebody has had an injury like that. So sort of very serendipitously met a neurologist uh, while I was uh, working in my uh, undergrad at MIT, and uh, he had an interest in movement disorders, and I, and I kind of posed this as a question of something that I'd be interested in sort of studying and he kind of egged me on and uh here i am today i you know many many years later but sort of that pushed me into actually wanting to leave a little bit of the engineering behind and work more with patients and that led me to medical school and neurosurgery well ian it's very interesting that dr wang mentioned the brain mind interface there there are so many bmis in medicine that we think about and one of them that I know is near and dear to your heart is the brain-machine interface, uh, with so much of the research and clinical work you've been doing lately with spinal cord injury patients, uh, working with prosthetics and neuroprosthetics in order to restore motor function. So as we begin this discussion on some of the cognitive processes in the human brain, maybe you can talk with us about how the end-of-the-line motor output 
from the human nervous system can help us understand underlying cognitive processes and how some of these things that we can measure and maybe potentially influence can help us get a glimpse at the underlying cognition? Sure, that's a the great, great question, uh, JP. Uh, I think that the motor output is sort of the final pathway of how we interact with the world, right? It's the way that we take our thoughts and our desires and our, our aims and we translate them into things that we want to do. So in the end, most of the things we do as humans are through interacting with the world. So if we can really pin down how our thoughts um, and end up being converted into motor signals, I think we're kind of starting to view the tip of the iceberg in terms of what else is going on in the brain. And if we come up with techniques to reliably measure these and decode uh, what's how the, the signals, electrocortical signals or single neuron signals are translated to the EMG and, and motor output of the, of the nervous system, that, that those tools are going to help us in the long run to build in to understand what, what else is going on in the nervous system and maybe apply, because the brain is a set of all these parallel circuits, maybe the circuits that have to do with drive and desire and motivation will have parallel structures that we can apply similar techniques to begin to understand. Yeah, I love how you bring that up, Ian, because I guess if you go back to Wilder Penfield days, right, there was this concept that you could kind of map the brain and this part of the brain does this motor function. And it seems like an automaton, right? It seems like it's, it's relatively simplistic. But what you're talking about is almost reverse engineering that is tracing back this idea of motor function to what we would call the cognitive side, which I guess you might call something like intent, right? Um, can you tell us a little about how you see that as an engineer in the brain? In other words, how does the brain function in terms of thought processes, then that connection to the motor actuator, right? In other words, you, we got the motor part, but then how how does intent get generated? Yeah. So the generation of intent is, a, I guess, would be the, the neuroscience question. As an engineer, I, I view things a little bit differently. I would say my, my job would be to find the correlation to intent in the signals that are present in the brain and relating those to the motor output. Because if you can reliably detect or generate a model between the relationship of the signals that you're measuring in the brain and a known intent that the person has with the motor output, then you've essentially reversed engineered that block diagram, as the engineers would call it. It's this black box that just takes neural signal that are related to intent to a motor output. And so the way I view it is a little bit more simplistic uh, in, the se in that sense, because my goal initially with getting into this was, well, now somebody doesn't have a particular motor function, and I know that they're trying to do A, B, or C. Can I set up an experiment or a set of experiments where I can collect the data under all these different intent scenarios and then build ways to decipher when A, B, or C are being thought by the subject? And if you can generalize a paradigm such as this, you can imagine, well, once we have enough measurements across different individuals, maybe we'll be able to find what the structure of those correlations are or how to actually understand how one leads to the other. Now, that, that's fascinating to me. I am a uh, 
diehard behaviorist when it comes to these camps and schools of thought within human psychology. And if you really take behaviorism to the extreme, almost to the point of ridicule, um, you would say that if, if you were to tell me, Ian, I have a headache, then the data for that exchange of information is not the fact that you have a headache, which is a subjective perception, but the data would be you said out loud the words, I have a headache. It is the behavior you express, not the subjective state of mind that you are trying to communicate. So the fact that now with these technologies, uh, functional MRI, high resolution brain imaging, we can try to pinpoint and measure and locate the focus of an intent, that mental function of intention, that is fascinating, obviously revolutionizing the way we view mental functions. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you localize the active intention within the human brain? Well, I'll give you an example, uh, to, particular to the setting that we're studying, which is in a patient with a cervical spinal cord injury. So what we were lucky enough to be able to do through a clinical trial is to implant a, a young man who had a cervical a spinal cord injury. He's a C5 Asia A, um, and uh, he's been chronic injury now five years out from his accident. Uh, we were able to implant uh, some electrodes over the hand motor cortex. Uh, and what we were able to do, and the, the way we found out where to place them specifically, well, we took the patient preoperatively to a functional MRI, and we had the patient think about moving his hand, opening and closing his hand. Um, and we looked at the bold signal in the, in the fMRI, and we were able to see that when he thought about moving his hand, there was robust activation or, as expected, the hand knob and motor cortex, despite the fact that his hand was unable to move. Uh, that then coupled by the fact that we asked him to move his shoulder uh, while he was in the machine and we had prox activation of the shoulder region of motor cortex that was actually moving sort of helped us determine that this in fact was real activation related to his intent of wanting to move the hand that just remained present despite being five years out from his spinal cord injury. So we implanted a strip of electrodes over the hand motor cortex, and we connected it to a device that allows us to stream this data out from his body in real time. And so we would be able to then in the lab, uh, postoperatively ask the subject to think about move your hands or think about move your wrist, think about moving your shoulder or think about grasping something. And we would get a real time view of what the electrical activity in these channels was. And um, using different machine learning techniques, we were able to build very accurate decoders of, you know, now just given the observation of the electrical signals, we would be able to predict with a high degree of certainty of around 90% or so accuracy, what the person was actually thinking, not knowing what they were thinking. And we've slowly worked on just refining this so that now we have a subject who's at home, he can think about opening or closing his hand in real time, untethered from a computer while he's in his wheelchair. And we have that in real time actuating a glove that will open and close the hand for him. So it's a very simple example of how you can take this sort of ability to correlate the intent to the electrical correlates in the brain to the intended motor function and sort of use a technology that's available, you know, he uses his iPhone, he uses um, a, a wireless Bluetooth glove that's sold off the shelf, and he's able to, you know, restore function just because we have access 
to the brain signal that's no longer able to affect any motor function. You know, functional neurosurgery clearly has been and, and continues to be the future of cranial neurosurgery. And, and that example really brings that up, Ian. I, I, I'm thinking back to a, a paper I read in a New England Journal in 1999. And if there's a paper about neurosurgeons in the New England Journal, it's usually anti-neurosurgery, right? But this, um, this French group had implanted, um, I want to say it's subthalamic nucleus stimulators for Parkinson's disease. So clearly trying to deal with motor function in this patient, right? And they were able to create a reproducible depression classic, you know, DSM diagnostic depression um, with certain stimulation patterns, which is, I, I mean, to me, it seems rather unexpected, right? And it gets to this issue of this link between, and maybe it's just an anatomical link, right? Maybe it's just correlative by location, but is there a deeper tie? And, and there must be, right? Between what we do and who we are or how we feel, right? Do you, do, you, do you find that in your research that you're starting to get into that sort of very, and I, of course, just scratching the surface, right? That very gray realm? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of examples. One is uh, it's a very common report that when electrodes are sort of misplaced in Parkinson's patients, uh, where you're near the, uh, uh, when you're, where you're not near the motor portion of the STN, but near, the limbic portions of the STN, you can actually cause patients to have sort of manic episodes and actually become hypermanic and want to go bedding and do all, you know, their behavior changes drastically. So it, it goes to my point earlier that I think the brain has like the basal ganglia and the subthalamic nucleus, they're not just used for motor function. What we see and we see and, and can recognize because of the crude technology we have is the motor output. But I think the limbic system also uses the same circuitry and it's organized in sort of a parallel way. So I think that it, those are just, a, that's one example of where honing in on understanding the motor function is going to allow us to understand these other circuits because they're, they're using the same hardware, so to speak. They're just in a circuit where we don't get to observe the output in the same way. The output in this, in this parallel limbic sy system is going to be the person's mood. Uh, and then to that end, actually, uh, Eddie Chang's group at, at UCSF has done some remarkable work where they've actually, they implant uh, patients with epilepsy for an extended period of time for their monitoring, but they've asked patients to grade their mood on uh, basically on, a, on, a, on an ordinal scale. So they, they have a number associated with the person's mood. And they've been able to actually, based on the electrocorticographic data alone, they can predict what mood the patient actually reported based on the electric information. Uh, so it, it it goes to show you that these circuits are parallel. They're, they're so, these signals are being modulated by all of these things, the motor output, our plan, our volition, our energy, you know, what your level of arousal is. I think there's correlates of all of these internal states present. And the question is building those relationships and understanding where in the network those things are represented the best so that you can begin to gauge what the state of internal state of the patient is. You know, it, it's hard not to hear this talk about these physical anatomical structures, which based on their orientation, their shape, and their proper function generate these mental states 
for not just patients, but all of us walking around with this anatomy in our heads and, and think about what that implies for our sense of identity and our sense of ourselves as humans. So for someone who's bread and butter and who's not nine to five, but maybe a five to midnight job every day is to think about these things and not just think about them, but manipulate them in order to understand their inner function and, and hopefully improve them and those with disease. How, how does thinking about these physical circuits in the brain that generate mood, happiness and sadness, or mental function, intelligence and memory, how does that affect your view of yourself as a thinking and feeling human and, and those around you? Yeah. So as an engineer, I always go back to, to kind of what, what is, I mean, basically it's a question of, of what really makes us, what, uh, what's our sort of cognition? Where does it come from? Is it sort of, and, and I would, and I would argue that it's, it's sort of, there's several states here. So one is we all have the same hardware uh, that, that is right. the brain structures that, and then, basic neural networks that are connected in like cerebellum coordinating balance, basal ganglia kind of helping with processing, uh, you know, motor plans. You have frontal lobes with trying to generate a uh, larger you know, sequence of goals and, and those things get integrated by the systems below. Then you have our experiences and our, our knowledge. It's sort of like this software that can augment the hardware that's already there and somehow influences how the whole system runs. And I think that cognition and who we are is sort of like this third layer that's built on top of that. It's sort of almost like the Turing's test. You know, if, if a computer could be programmed to do these things, it could generate new information. You know, is it is it alive? Is it thinking? So I think that, and it's not something I think is well understood yet from what we understand. And I think we're still at the level of understanding, you know, what are the circuits, what's, how do these circuits integrate, uh, and, and what drives the planning and, and execution of different parts of uh, human emotion or, or movement. I think the actual who, what makes us us is sort of as yet, in my mind, an intangible, um, but is really an exciting part of what I love about functional neurosurgery, because who's to say that by not by beginning to understand these processes, we won't begin to get some insight as to where that happens, or where is that, you know, what is the substrate for those more uh, those questions about what makes us who we are, um, and and I think that's sort of exciting because in the process of trying to help people through these techniques, when we can help with people with movement disorders, maybe we're laying the groundwork for helping understand what makes us us and what, what can help us become better people. Yeah. So along those lines, Ian, um, you know, so much of what's been done in neurosurgical research has been animal research, right? And as we get deeper into the concept of the mind, what do you think will be the future of animal research? Will it even be relevant? And, or, or will we have a better understanding of, of the, the soul or mind or whatever you want to say, or the cognition of the animal, right? What do you see? I mean, you're, you're a very active researcher and engineer. You're, you, you're, I don't know if you do primate research, but you're obviously uh, doing a lot of research with humans. What do you think will be the future models that we use? Are we just going to do this on individual patients, almost like case reports to figure this out? Or will, they, will there be an animal model or is there a computer model? 
Yeah, I mean, an interesting point is some people think that there will be a computer model. There's a big project in Europe uh, called Brain, where they're actually building a computer that simulates all the neural connections in the brain and somehow with the thought that by just plugging these neurons together, they will begin to get insights into what makes us who we are. So there are some people that think that it is through simulations of the structures that are there that we will be able to make leaps and bounds and sort of understanding how the brain works. I think the animal models, I don't think until we have the ability to do those simulations, if we ever get there, I think the animal models always allow us to make manipulations under controlled settings and, and understand what's, what is the result. I don't think that those will go away anytime soon. Um, just because you can control variables much more finely. Um, with humans, that's going to be extremely difficult because you're not in the job of manipulating and the ethics of doing that manipulation is, is sort of out of, out of bounds. And, and I don't think it's something that should be undertaken. Um, but I think there is uh, also a push to trying to take, take a big data approach to understanding taking the single experiments we do every day in the operating room and merging those back and collecting data from every individual patient and just taking approaches that apply machine learning and data mining techniques to sort of extrapolate and control and perform these virtual randomized control trials on data to try to understand things using humans. So I think that they're all complementary, to be honest. I think that Clearly, I think simulation is going to give insights because you can tweak every single parameter. Animal models are going to be you know, faster to develop, particularly in, in uh, species that replicate faster, where you have good ways to modulate the, the gene expression uh, and, and give interventions with medications or electrodes. Uh, and then, of course, with humans, we don't experiment on them individually. But I think if we can collectively come up with a framework of how do we merge their data and ask questions in an intelligent fashion? I think we're going to get a lot of insights. Well, Ian, um, kind of as we stated at the top, you're a chief resident in neurosurgery right now. You're a father. We want to respect your time. But before I let you go, I want to maybe a little bit put you on the spot. And again, just to contextualize this for our listeners, this is a conversation that has ranged from you know, the qualities of the human consciousness to helping someone with a spinal cord injury move a glove just by thinking about it. So from your position right now, with training from MIT as an electrical engineer, poised to begin your career as a neurosurgeon in the United States, I want you to look ahead and imagine the amount of time that your career will span the next few decades. And it can be in functional neurosurgery, it can be in tech, it can be in basic science, neuroscience, understanding the human cognition. What is the thing that you most look forward to discovering or developing? And what for our listeners, whether they be in medicine or in science or not, what crazy sci-fi thing were to be around today do you expect might be the norm in 40, 50 years from now? Yeah, I, th I think during my lifetime, I, I envision that uh, given the, the rate of change of te the technology and hardware we have available, we will be able to have patients with spinal cord injury walking around, moving their upper and lower limbs as a result of just their thoughts. Um, 
already there is a group uh, by Alim Benabid in in Paris, in France, in Grenoble, uh, where they they've shown a single spinal cord injury patient that they were able to do a, an implant similar to what I described earlier, but with more channels. And they were able to show in this patient, he was able to control stepping on a robot. He was able to control the X, Y, Z and rotation of his hand. Uh, So I think that that technology is here today. And I think definitely within, um, you know, our lifetimes, we will see this sort of become mainstream and, and we will hopefully restore the function of people to, to do the things they want to do that, you know, they're currently limited by the just a wheelchair technology that's been around for hundreds of years. So I think that will make leaps and bounds in terms of what we're able to, what these individuals will be able to give back to society um, and care for themselves and overall their quality of life. So that to me is, is one of the main things I, that get, helps me get up in the morning because I've, spent a lot of time thinking about this. And when I originally started, it seemed like such a far-fetched idea. And here I am just about to start, you know, my career. And I can already see some examples of this occurring in reality. And that to me is super exciting. Well, that, I mean, that's exciting to me as well. I could listen to you talk about it for hours and hours. But like I said, we want to respect your time. I mean, the things you're talking about, Ian, the, these are miracles, to put it bluntly. Um, and it's it's exciting and inspiring to think that we have these to look forward to on the horizon, being normal, being just another treatment that you can get at the hospital. Um, as you said, the technology exists. From now, it's just an engineering problem. So, uh, Ian, thank you uh, for myself and Dr. Wang and everyone listening for this inspiring and stimulating conversation. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight on the Neurosurgery Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.